Hey everyone, welcome to episode one of the Pain Class Podcast, where my goal is not only to create simple and succinct conversations around new pain information, but also to build into that therapies, therapists, and things you might want to consider in order to move the your pain situation and into a life more closely aligned with your best vision. I believe this begins with a mindset shift. So start your pain journey off on the right foot. Go to painclasspodcast.com and receive your free pain perspectives course where, you're, where, where you'll learn to move from an old mindset to a new mind flow. Today's guest is the Thomas Edison-like exemplar of learning and succeeding from the gamut of life's experiences. Having moved 27 times throughout four countries, from the Malay archipelago to the Netherlands, to finally settle in Canada, this man has faced many facets of life firsthand. He knows pain and he knows gain. He knows falling and he knows getting back up. His accomplishments in high school athletics donned championships in three sports, even though graduating seemed to be a course fettered with obstacles, especially for a young man amidst young women in a country where the legal drinking age is 16. 18 months in the military armed him with much-needed discipline. For many of us, getting back up is enough. But after four broken noses, a broken wrist, broken fingers, a broken ankle and toes, as well as three mild and one moderate concussion, two failed marriages, getting up is nothing but a step in the process. For him, rebuilding is a purpose of falling. His house, he literally built with bare hands. And atop off, and atop off his flair, he's performed three musicals. After a remarkable career teaching, which he did for a full year and a half, he went back to school and graduated at 31 with high honors. He worked as a Canadian physiotherapist and added acupuncture to his array of modalities. Call hard work education, he was employed in a psychiatric hospital where the inpatient to staff ratio was nearly double, let alone tending to thousands of outpatients. Later, he entered into the realm of athletics, treating and traveling nationally and internationally with ski and figure skating teams. He returned to teaching and instructed various workshops on upper and lower extremities, as well as spinal dysfunctions at national conferences for the Canadian and American Association of Orthopedic Medicine. Being embedded in practice and teaching gave him insights and opportunities to apply what he studied of specialized manual therapy techniques, which ironically sparked his skepticism for uh, the, the very paradigms they were built on. Professionally, he's better equipped to explain the changes made in manual therapy from the more scientifically plausible perspective of neuroscience. Guys, help me in welcoming the physiotherapist who is an active part of changing how we understand and treat pain the man who is a mentor as well as a member of the Professional Development Committee for Postgraduate Physiotherapists of the Pain Sciences Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, a moderator on numerous online forums, founder of four physio clinics, and a professional list 
take literally days to complete, the musical man daring enough to be one of the stars in the full Monty at 60, Sebastian Asselberg. Sebastian, how you doing? Well, I'm uh, uh, I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, thank you for that uh, very uh, praising uh, intro. It, it it really sounds good, and I I have to let my wife hear that. Uh, <clears throat> it it would suit me well. Thank you, and good You're to welcome. be here. It's good. It's good to have you here. And you know, as I was reading it, and we talked about earlier. Um, you know, what, what we wanted to focus on today for your interview, uh, nocebo and, and, um, you know, good and bad words used in, in, in a therapeutic setting. And, and it's, it sounded perfect around, you know, all, all of this, uh, pain and, and, and getting back up and, and stuff. But, um, yeah, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, nocebo. I think that's a good place to start. Well, thanks. Yeah, the um, the idea of nocebo is uh, it is the counter, uh, the opposite of placebo. And most people know placebo as uh, a fake pill in medicine studies that is not supposed to have any effect. And over the last seventy years of uh, of studies, it came consistently clear that even a sugar pill or a fake pill had a positive effect in anywhere from a quarter to a third of the patients involved in uh, in the control group in studies. Um, so that meant that we had to study the placebo a little deeper. Associated with the placebo is the nocebo. And the nocebo is basically a negative effect from something that technically is inert. Uh, so if for instance, I would give somebody um, a sugar pill and say, this will really make you feel very, very painful in your sore knee, but you're part of the study, but it's going to hurt really bad. There will be about 30 to 35% of those people that will report increased pain and discomfort. That tells us that since the pill was not to blame for that, that words and language and information creates an effect in the neurology of a patient. It creates an effect of uh, a cognitive process that makes the pain worse. Okay. We all know that actually, if we, uh, for instance, uh, come home after a busy day playing sports and you look in your leg and you see a big bruise, you say, I don't know what I did there. Obviously, there must have been a, a loud pain signal because some tissues was, uh, was damaged. Uh, yet, on the other hand, if you just lose your home, your mortgage is claimed by a bank, and you walk into the corner of a table, you wouldn't even fee you wouldn't even stop. Um, you would crumble on the floor crying with pain. So what we are talking about with nocebo is the effect that external factors of language and context can have on pain. I hope that wasn't too complicated. <laughs> uh, no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, so let's see. Where can we go with that? I think uh, maybe to bring it back down and make it and to simplify it, uh, can you give us uh, maybe an example from your practice or uh, another example from life that you can think of? Uh, one of the examples from my practice is uh, it, it was very clear when a patient came uh, with a report from a doctor uh, in which 
she was told from the doctor, the x-ray report says, you have um, mild to moderate arthritis in, in your knee. And she had a sore knee. And she thought that this was basically um, the end for her knee. She was looking at total knee replacement soon. She was in pain. She was terrified that this was the end uh, for her uh, for her running. And it really wasn't. When you examined the knee, there was good range of motion, good strength. It was just irritated, a little warm, probably irritated at some point. And when we went over the research that shows that mild arthritis after 40 is, is quite, quite common and uh, that it's not necessarily a death knell for her running, um, she came back basically a day and a half later and saying, you know, that, that I felt so much better afterwards. My knee actually felt better. Wow. That's that's an example of a nocebo when when people get a report from an MRI or when they get a, a doctor says, well, I've never seen a back as curved as yours. Uh, that is really bad. That plants in the patient brain a very negative connotation with a painful condition. And the more negative those connotations are, the worse the patient can the, the pain can be. And that is something we're trying to battle really hard to make sure that we don't use words that make people cringe or or um, they have Googled things and they have found that, oh, my goodness, now I need injections. So many conditions that we see on x-ray or that people tell them uh, you have pronation or you have hunched shoulders, uh, you're going to be sore, it's going to be bad for you. We have to stop doing that. The human body is so resilient and can adapt so well and can be coaxed back into normal function without making it needlessly difficult for a patient by scaring them. And unbeknownst and i'm not saying that practitioners do that willfully that's that's not my point mm -hmm. we're so used to using medical terms um, we're so used to saying oh wow yeah i've never seen a shoulder that bad and you can say that in a light tone but for the patient that is that is a pretty serious statement i remember right. very clearly uh, <laughs> this is an example that taught me this very personally i had treated a, a wonderful old lady is about 72 years old i was only 42 so i called her old then um, and i said to her um, well you're doing much better you've done really well so i hope never having to see you again i hope to never have to see you again and i said it with a smile i thought 15 years later she came back for a massage with a the massage therapist in the office and she froze in her tracks when she saw me and she said, oh, oh, is it okay if I'm here? I said, well, of course, good to see you. She ended up telling me that she thought she was never welcome again in my clinic. Even though I thought I had said it jokingly, I did not do it carefully enough. She was a very, very proper lady, very well-spoken, very well-behaved, very quiet. And I just chose the wrong quip at that point and and that had a devastating effect on her for 15 years she wow. carried this around so that really drove home like a nail in my coffin that that was the power of words the negative power of words mm. wow so can you tell us some um some of the most common nocebo phrases that we might hear um <laughs> yeah let's just go into that you're getting old uh-huh um, when people have 
stiff achy joints or they have overdone it a little bit you're getting old uh, there's nothing we can do about it the next one they hear very often is well yeah there's a lot of wear and tear okay um the next one is well we see bulging discs most of these come from from imaging uh, reports but also my goodness you have severe pronation of your feet uh, anything that says severe or terrible or I have never seen that before. Hmm. Um, those are those are terms that we have to be very gentle with, and we have to be absolutely sure that it actually accurately represents what is wrong with the patient. Um, and I think that that will be extremely rare. I think most of the time, instead of saying, "Well, there's a lot of wear," you can say, "Well, uh, your tissue your tissues are in a state of repair, and they need some help." Because ultimately, that's what osteoarthritis is. It's the delayed repair mechanism in the, in the joints, an, an autoimmune disorder of the joint. And you can do things about that. And you can manage your movement and your joint to not have pain and irritation all the time. Okay. So, you know, when I'm listening to you, I, I'm thinking of questions in my mind, but you keep answering them before, I, oh. <laughs> before I'm able to... Uh, to let to, to let off a, a question, but um, yeah, that's the next thing is like so if there are if, if our words hold uh, power, um, and maybe we say something in a positive light versus a negative, um, uh, you know how how do we know <laughs> what actually is sort of maybe needs to be um, treated medically and what doesn't, because you're saying, um, you know, some imaging scans, uh, aren't as, um, you, you know, they might not be giving us the best information, uh, on what to do. So how do we differentiate between those two? Well, yeah, that's, that is a good point. And that, that is the point of, my assessments of patients. Um, the history of the patient is extremely vital because there is so much information in there. Uh, some of it will be colored by their memory and will not be as accurate, but generally the story of a patient is what really gives a lot of indicators what the severity could possibly be that you're dealing with. If somebody comes with, yeah, I've had a stiff low back, but it's now getting worse, I'm getting stiffer, and they come in with an MRI that says there's osteoarthritis and degenerative disc disease, I'm not going to be worried if I do my exam and I find no neurological deficits, there are no bladder incontinence, there is no referred pain below the buttock. I'm saying, you know what? Um, that x-ray or that MRI doesn't really mean anything. Uh, you haven't moved enough. So let's explore that. So it, it, is, it depends completely on what you find in the assessment. And that's where a professional assessment is very important. Eliminate the red flags that actually indicate that you need an MRI or that you need to see a doctor or a specialist. So that, that's quite important. And I know massage therapists, uh, especially here in Ontario, uh, get really drilled hard, the same as physiotherapists and chiropractors, to recognize red flags and yellow flags. And, and, and I think that is, that is an essential part of our practice. That is mo the most important part for me. If there are no red flags, I rub my hands and say, okay, now we can talk pain science. Now we can talk what you can do about this complaint yourself. Yeah, so, the, so pain... Um, in, in, in trying to figure things out, uh, gaining a perspective from, you know, some functional 
assessments yep. um, may give us even more insight than uh, than, than an actual uh, uh, visual. Scan. Absolutely. Let me give you an example. We, we used to have a posture chart, a, a plexiglass grid that you put a patient behind and then you make a note on how bad the head is forward or how much lumbar lordosis there is or how hunched the back is. And that became then the reason why that person had back problems. We now know that it is absolute poppycock, that there's nonsense. There are people that are terribly hunched, that have no pain. There are people who are ramrod straight, like I was in the army. And let me tell you, after two hours, my back was sore from standing perfectly straight. So <laughs> it, it, there are things that we have dropped now. And, and there are things that we need to do more of. And the patient's story is a really strong part of a good assessment. And... Um, and, and that's what guides uh, our, our tests. If a patient uh, tells you that there's pain that goes all the way to the foot from the back, well, you know, you know what? Um, I need to do a very accurate neurological exam on that patient um, because there could be something going on possibly with a nerve root in the back. It could simply be an irritation of the sciatic, but that leads my assessment. And then I can also talk more securely what it isn't. And patients really want to know what it isn't. And I see a lot of patients, and there are very, very few, where I have to say, you know what? I think you need to go back to your doctor for a Doppler test or an MRI or a CAT scan. Most of them, I can say, you know what? There's nothing in my exam that says uh, there's anything dangerous going on in your tissues. You just got something that is pretty cranky and that is triggering a lot of tightness that makes everything even more cranky. So let's work with that. Okay. Yeah. So, so outside of maybe some words that um, might be used to, to uh, I guess, exaggerate the pain experience, um, how would, so then after, if, if someone comes in with, with pain and they're, um, it's correlated with a scan, they come to you, um, you do some assessments and find, well, and hear their story. Maybe the scan isn't the best thing. Uh, we can do something for you. What, besides using words, uh, as a placebo, then say, for instance, we're talking about, um, you know, osteoarthritis in the knee, what, what sort of thing would you do uh, to actually, um, you know, you treat them? Because that's what a lot of people will want as well, right? Not just words that are going to create hope. Well, um, there comes a bit of a, a disappointment. Um, the, the treatment is almost always helping the patient explore what they can do for themselves. Um, it is uh, sometimes it means um, I help my, with my hands. I help explore uh, more flexion that they than they were planning on using. Or they say I can't straighten out my knee, and with some very gentle coaxing and uh, and and some verbal stimulation and saying, okay, now let's go a little further. Let's try a little bit of this. You can you can have people experience their body in a different way, or you find out that this person actually likes water. So why don't you go and and uh, and join the aqua fitness and you move nice and slow in the water. Uh, there is, to be fair, um, not an awful lot of modalities that I use other than my hands and an occasional, uh, an occasional weight for resistance uh, for certain parts. But uh, it is mostly about empowering the patient to to help them do what they need to do 
24-7 instead of three times a week with me. Yeah, so you're more sort of like a, a positive movement coach. Um, yep, that's a good okay. term. And, you know, there's something, that, uh, there's a quote that I heard uh, recently from a neuroscientist who said that many people think that the more difficult or the more fundamental a problem is than the more difficult it is to solve, but that's actually, there's actually no correlation. And often that a simple solution is staring you at you in the face and you're just missing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I, uh, and, and that's so true. I've, I've given you my failure example of words. Um, I, I give you an example of, of what placebo and what coaching can do in a very short while. A woman had a severe MVA, had a, had a whiplash, a could barely move her neck. She was seen by uh, a practitioner who had said, now be very careful, be very careful with your neck. And she was not getting better. She was not getting better. Uh, a month later, she came to me because a friend had told her, you got to go there. So I said to her, so how far can you move? Oh, oh, I'm, I'm not supposed to. She did not move her neck at all. Now, you know yourself that if you don't move a body part for over a month, uh, that piece is going to be as cranky as hell and everything will hurt. So what we did is is say, okay, lie, lie down. We'll eliminate uh, gravity and let me help you. So let's go to the left. And we went from about two degree movement to about 40 degrees in a span of five minutes. Because I said, it, I told her before we did that, you have to understand your x-rays are clear. There is nothing broken. You are not going to die when it moves. It will hurt when you do it fast, but let's do it slow. So that was a wonderful effect because she faxed me that night and said, my God, I can't believe I have 60% more movement already and you didn't do anything. <laughs> and that is and that is the best feedback. I don't want to be the one that does things to them. I want them to understand how much their nervous system can influence their own pain and their own movement and their lack of function. Wow. So their nervous system and then their thoughts, like um, <laughs> how do you overcome fear, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now that I, I, I have to agree, um, the cognitive dissonance that patients have, they have believed for years that, yeah, you know, this back has been going on for so long it's because I go out of alignment all the time and I have a weak core and I can't do anything about it. Sometimes it is very difficult to change patients' Um, understanding of what's going on and, and I fail I have failures absolutely no matter what kind of visuals or examples or metaphors I use for instance the contextual effect here's an example I tell patients that, that have to learn about contextual effects you walk through a beautiful wooded park at the moonlit night gorgeous quiet and suddenly you hear a branch crack immediately behind you mm. imagine your body reaction with that input into your ears so now you walk through that same beautiful moonlit park, quiet, and I'm walking right behind you. There's not a sound to hear until you suddenly hear a branch crack immediately behind you. The same input into your ears, the same visual input, except that little bit of knowledge somewhere hanging in your brain that it's Sebastian behind you makes you react completely different, makes the output of your brain totally different. So that's a metaphor I use to understand what contextual information and what contextual factors can mean. Mm. Um, wearing, wearing a jacket, a suit jacket, or a golf shirt. For one person, the golf shirt is trust-inspiring. For another, it's a suit jacket. That's a crapshoot, so I don't worry about it. <laughs> but I can worry about my words. I can, I can worry about me um, making sure I get 
into their life and their lifestyle and what they enjoy and use analogies that fits that. Right. And that's not easy. Sometimes I have to dig very deep and sometimes I fail. Mm -hmm. Good. That's a beautiful place to, um, to, to take pause. And, uh, you know, I think for us that are listening to think about those things, you know, think about the, uh, nocebo effect and, um, and how that is being incorporated into your current pain experience and, um, you know, start to find, ways to overcome any fears and anxieties or worries that that might have been placed in your sphere of um you know conceptualizing what's going on with you uh especially if um you know the scans uh are, are you know look good um or if a diagnosis was made but not wasn't very thorough so basque Let's just take a very quick break. Um, when we get back, we'll get into the value rounds where you can share some um, some of your wisdom and um, suggestions on important resources for us. <coughs> okay, so ready for the value round? You betcha. Okay, so and these you can you can pull this out from your life or your professional experience. Um, all of it will be valuable to us. Uh, so the first question is, who or what helped you most on your journey? Well, I I interpret that question as as more or less aiming at my professional journey, and that would have been uh, David Butler. Um, I took a course in 1998 with David Butler, and his presentation, first of all, incredibly entertaining, and second, very thoughtful. And he was so willing to be proven wrong, which was another immense stimulus in the right step. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of other people along the way who kicked me hard on the right path by challenging my uh, my previously held notions. I knew everything, you know. I knew everything. I could do anything. And I got a few humbling experiences from some people who are now very good friends of mine. <laughs> awesome. So what's the best advice you ever received? Um, that we are not treating anatomy, but we're treating a person with a nervous system. That was um, Diane Jacobs, and uh, and she's absolutely right. That was also long ago. Um, can you, for for some of us, may not understand exactly what that means? Can you? Oh, yeah. Us, yeah. Can you kind of give us some insight into that? Well, patients almost always come to me. I'm in an outpatient clinic with a painful complaint, and I would look at. Uh, pelvic alignment, spinal alignment, muscle length, muscle tightness, muscle function, gait patterns, postures. Look at I was looking at the structure of the person instead of trying to understand what was going on to make that person feel pain. Uh, and I am not, I was not appreciating the anatomical differences between people. 
each person's history of movement, each person's history of injury is so damn unique. There is not a chance in hell I can put two people next to each other with low back pain and find um, a common anatomical variant. So I had to let go of focusing so much on the meat and looking more at what wires um, connects to meet with the patient's experiences. So I, I became more uh, neurophysiologically focused. I don't forget the anatomy, but I'm certainly rarely treating it. Wow. Amazing. Okay, so what's uh, just give us maybe one thing, something that we can do, something that's simple, practical, and applicable. I actually, uh, it, it sounds horrible, horribly simple, but if you can move even a little bit, do that a lot more than you do already. Uh, and it doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be aggressive. But movement is what our bodies have evolved for. And in our Western world, we are sitting still, we are sitting in the car, we are sitting to eat, we very often sit at desks, we do not move enough. Our culture does not have people standing in front of each other at meetings, shimmying their hips and moving their shoulders. No, we are professional and stand wonderfully still. We need to move. Even in pain, there will be movements, even if it's an inch of rotation in your neck, use that inch to make those muscles a little happier, those nerves a little happier in there. That is, movement is, is the crucial part for human health. Whatever that is, that's where you start. Beautiful. And share an internet link or a resource that you, that you like. Well, there is actually a very good uh, Facebook page called Explaining Pain Science. Uh, there is a, a wealth of of knowledge that is shared on that uh, on that Facebook page, uh, with articles, with uh, resources for both patients as as well as practitioners, um, I find that extremely useful. For a book, one book for people who are um, who are novices to this, buy the book. It's about nineteen Canadian dollars. The brain that changes itself, um, by far the best read about how malleable the human brain is and therefore how malleable everything that happens to a human can be from pain to alzheimer's to all kinds of to stroke patients there's some wonderful stories in there very easy and very good read food for thought great and so you know i'm i'm i often wonder uh should we should we wait until we have pain in or uh, to to begin to move and so <laughs> excellent what's a, what's a daily habit that that helps you um, or that you would recommend to us to do I, that's such a good such a good point um, don't don't wait for pain um, <laughs> it, it it is imperative that we, when we wake up, we do a couple of easy leg rolls from side to side, that we do a few shoulder shrugs, that we wake up our body, um, that when you sit in the car, shift your weight all the time. 
move more, listen to tunes, get a little salsa in your hips. Um, it, it really is important when you, for instance, a walker and you like to walk five, six miles a day, make sure you vary your pace. Make sure every now and then you lift up your knees very high. Uh, put variety in there. If people want to get uh, into a routine, learn to do some yoga. It is wonderful stuff. You can do it anywhere. You have a piece of flooring and then put a mat down. It is wonderful for human bodies and you don't have to be thin and flexible for it at all. It is a fabulous way to become more aware of your body and to move it better. Great. So, so we should look at movement like we look at cuisine. You <laughs> bet it. Yes. 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 Gourmand movement. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And I think we could prevent a lot. Uh, as, as the research shows, um, uh, inactive children are getting more obese. Um, they're getting more trouble with diseases. They get more trouble with immune systems. They get more injuries. So it is, it is absolutely clear from, from the childhood studies that are being done in the last 10 years that people need to move more. And it doesn't have to be running a marathon. Absolutely not. I would never. <laughs> right. I hate running. Good. Pain class podcasters, you know that social support is the most important factor in good health. You've just spent time with Chris Corrales and Bass Asselbergs. So stay positive, hopeful, innovative, and creative. For more info on him and all of the names, books, resources he mentioned, Go to painclasspodcast.com, read the show notes, get all the salient points of the interview from there. Um, while you're there, again, in the spirit of a true student, evolve your mindset, sign up for your free pain perspectives course. We just had an awesome interview. Stay tuned for the next episode. And remember, be body, brain, brilliant.